Would you please take your Bibles to Romans 14? Um, I am so thankful to hear from uh, our missionaries and our young people. Uh, Valerie, we were praying and we're thankful that your recent uh, interaction with a snake wasn't worse. Thankful for that. Uh, And that I appreciate so much your sharing with us the recent Wyoming camp that you had, which was... uh, a great opportunity to pray as my own son was headed off to do that here locally. Carolee, thank you for sharing with us and, and giving us more opportunity to pray with you. Uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. Thank you for sharing all those things. Young people, uh, most of you, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I Honestly, I, he had told me that he thought he was the best public speaker in our family. I'm not positive that I can argue against that. So, <clears throat> um, I'm aware that we had all these opportunities today. I don't have a full, typical sermon for us. But there's something I want to say that I think is very important as we uh, walk our way through Romans 14. In Romans 14, we, we as Christians are being challenged to Worship our God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is our reasonable worship. To perceive ourselves as priests before God, laying down ourselves daily on an altar of worship. In light of that, there is sometimes difficult decisions to make about how do we most glorify God. And when it comes to things that are not necessarily biblically explicit, we have been talking over the past month about the application of liberty in our diversity. So we have brothers and sisters who feel differently about things that we would call secondary or opinions. I want to talk today just a quick word about the conscience and all of that. So what I mean by that is you are wrestling with a choice. And you can't necessarily turn to a chapter and verse and find express command about whatever choice it is you're dealing with. I want you to understand that God's providence to you, while you might not find it in chapter and verse, is definitely in the area of conscience. We, we tend to think skeptically about the role of conscience as Americans, uh, modern-day Christians. We tend to think about conscience as being linked somehow to the heart, which is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We think, ooh, the heart, the conscience must be a problem. In fact, God's providence to us, according to Romans 1 and 2, is that he has written code on our heart. I would call that conscience. The Holy Spirit directs and speaks to us by what I would call conscience. So I want to talk today... Just briefly, not not for very long. Well, I would love to talk about this category for a long time. John Bunyan, his second most famous work is on the issue of conscience. I didn't know that. Maybe you didn't know that either. You know his book, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote similar allegory on the issue of the human conscience. Great story. If you'd like to find a link to where you can find that uh, in Kindle form for a dollar... A John Bunyan book for a dollar. You can find that on the church's Facebook page. Martin Luther 
was being challenged at Verms to recant under threat of death. And he said this, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Richard Sibbs, another forerunner of church history, described the conscience as a courtroom where all of us were making a case for either our guilt or our innocence, the last judgment in anticipation as we choose what is good and what is evil. Listen closely to this quote from J.I. Packer. Conscience signifies a man's knowledge of himself standing in God's presence. Karam Dale. A knowledge that you stand in God's presence. The choices we make that are yours to make are made in the presence of God. And you think, what if I don't get it right? It's a valid question. But God is faithful, and I think one of the gifts that he has given us is our conscience. I want to talk just for a few minutes about that in this sermon titled, Loving Discipleship of the Conscience, Guarding the Church from an Undiscipled Conscience. I think that the emphasis on conscience has become kind of rare. I don't think that this chord is struck very often. However, the prophet Isaiah said, woe to any people who call evil good and good evil. But that is an issue of an inactive or hyperactive conscience. When we feel guilty about things we're not supposed to, or when we feel innocent in things we're not supposed to. So we have to strike this chord as we walk through Romans 14 and just spend a moment today on a bit of a topical sermon about the conscience. Think about the word conscience. Conscience is a compound word. Science is knowledge, right? Science is knowledge. I was explaining this to my daughter last night that the, my, my nine-year-old daughter about, about the Latin background of the word conscience, conscience, scientia. It is knowledge from another. Knowledge, science, con from another. It's not yours. It doesn't originate with you. And I said, I said, honey, that's what conscience is. And she said, oh, that's really good. She said, did you make that up? I said, no, that's Latin. I did not make that up. Conscience refers to the knowledge we have that didn't originate with us. We, we've heard about gospel ministers who are ministering in places where people don't know God's commands, God's law. However, there are occasions where they do what is evil and feel bad about it. Why feel guilty if you've not had the commands of God and understand yourself as a rebel. Conscience. 
In Christian history, the conscience has been called God's vice regent within us, or sergeant, which is employed to arrest sin. So today, I want to talk to you from a couple different passages. One is 1 Corinthians 10, which is a parallel to Romans 14, and then also Romans 14. So let me start by saying what we need as Christ followers is not to revoke each other's liberty. That might seem like a simple solution. Just remove the choice. We don't need to remove the liberty. We need to disciple the chooser. Okay? So I want to start this morning by just telling you that my teaching today is going to be for what I presume to be an audience that's not looking for me to give them some way to go on sinning so that grace abound. Okay? In other words, I'm not talking to us about having liberty in those areas that are expressly sin. The, the word has taught us. But rather, how do we navigate as worshipers those issues that are not expressly explained in Scripture? And I'm going to, if there's time at the end, I'm going to give you what I think is a very sensitive case study. Then, assuming that we're not talking about a group of people who are trying to find a way to navigate um, gratification of their own flesh, and abuse grace, then let's discuss the importance of conscience as it applies to the liberty we have as priests before God. Liberty as priests before God. So God sets us in this arena, this temple of worship before him and says, honor me, glorify me as priests. How do we navigate our liberty as God's priest? That's the first thing I want to talk about. We are God's priests. Turn your Bibles back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, because this is the context of which we're studying Romans 14. Romans 12, 1, this huge pivotal point over our last, it's almost four, it'll be, in January it'll be four years of study walking through the book of Romans. And in Romans 12, we came across this great pivotal expression. I appeal to you, therefore based on these 11 chapters describing and defending the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by test, you discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Christian liberty of God's priests. Listen as I read from 1 Peter 2.4. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, so that you might proclaim or make known the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is our calling to be priests. Worshiping God. Selecting incense. Selecting songs expressing our worship. Choosing, choosing, choosing. 
the methods and the means of worshiping God. So, we could say a bit about soul liberty, about the priesthood of the believer. Let me just say this, 1 Corinthians 10.23. The Bible says, all things are lawful, but they are not all helpful. All are lawful, but they don't all build up. And the question that is really relevant is, how do I know which it is? Is it the all lawful, or is it the sure lawful, but not helpful? How do I know? I'm going to advocate for you in these moments, conscience. Martin Luther, I think, summarized it well when it came to this issue of Christian liberty as a priest before God, when he wrote, a Christian is perfectly free. We sang about that a moment ago, didn't we? Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Who is to condemn? It is God who is justified. So Luther says, the Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. Period. A Christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Full gospel liberty being stewarded with an attitude of dutiful service. American history has not done a good job with the issues of conscience, discipleship, liberty. Not a great job. Listen to just three quick examples. There was an idea early in American history in this experiment of the Christian commonwealth where activities were going to be controlled so that the culture would become Christianized by strict conduct. There was, in 1743, an introduction of what was Wesley's general rules of united society that urged members to avoid evil of every kind, and then went on to list some issues that the Bible doesn't necessarily prohibit. More recently, in American revivalism, Revival was measured not by the fruit of the Spirit so much as abstaining from certain cultural taboos. The temperance movement is born out of American revivalism in the 1830s. Look at this history. We have to ask ourselves a looming question that Paul asked the church at Galatia when he says in Galatians 3.1, Foolish Galatians, Who has bewitched you? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit of works by law or hearing with faith? Are you so foolish now, having begun by the spirit, that you think you're now being perfected by... No one is justified before God by the law. The righteous live by faith. The issue for us is praising God in everyday decisions that are not always plainly black and white. But here we are as priests in this magnificent temple willing to exalt and worship our God and sometimes having to make difficult decisions and how to go about that. I want to say this to people who are, who are, I hope, with us. I hope there are people with us today that don't know Jesus Christ as their own personal redeemer. I, I hope that 
you're here and you're welcome here. But I want to say that when it comes to this issue of choices, I want you to hear, I'm not saying what I think becomes the sum total of Christianity, at least culturally, which is, well, I think I'm a Christian because I don't do A, B, and C. I would like to liberate your definition of Christianity from that, which I think is culturally uh, defining Christianity. I don't do these, I abstain from these things that are culturally taboo. I'm, I'm sensitive, I don't think you should do that, so I don't do that, therefore I must be a Christian. Let, let me just liberate that and paint a bigger picture. The real heart of Christianity is how we worship, how we exalt God by the accomplished redemption of Jesus Christ. How we worship is the issue. So, as I talk through this issue for for, for my unsaved friends, I just want you to know that we're not talking about our morality getting better. We are talking about worshiping God in a way that honors Him as priests before God. Having been once and for all saved by the work of Christ at the cross, by His powerful resurrection, What are we set free to? Well, to be priests before God. How do we do that? Number two is this. Discipleship, discipleship leads to a more mature conscience, not less liberty. Okay, here we sit in this room together. We're doing church. We're making decisions. We're trying to decide on, maybe sometimes it's policy. Uh, We're trying to make expressions of what we think honors God. And sometimes we don't agree. I want you to understand that when we have varying opinions about secondary issues, this is not an obstacle to be avoided. This is an opportunity to make disciples. I want to make that really clear. The diversity we have and how we have different opinions is not some sort of obstacle that's an inconvenience. It is the very opportunity that we have in church to make disciples. It's a good thing that we're not all exactly the same. You're sitting by someone right now whose conscience is super sensitive. They feel like everything's bad. That person is not a blight on the New Testament church. That person's a brother or sister in Christ who you get to serve and disciple. Then you have someone who's sitting on the other side of you. Of course, you're not the problem. It's the people on the right and the left. But then you have the person on the other side of you whose conscience is just dead. It's been decades since they felt like anything was unpleasing to God. And that person is not an obstacle for us to avoid, but an opportunity for us to serve and glorify Christ. Okay? So that's what I mean in this point. Discipleship leads to more mature conscience, not less liberty. The church, I I hope that you'll hear this. The church is not a number of growing people. That's not a church. That's Milwaukee Bucks fans. The church is not a number of growing people. The church is a number of growing people who are spiritually maturing and imitating Christ. So the question is, what happens when the conscience, the conscience 
this confess, the conscience, this confession of knowledge from another, what happens when your conscience isn't shaped by the gospel? What happens when it's hyperactive or when it's dull? Let's talk about what happens when it's hyperactive. Romans chapter 14, where we've been in recent weeks, verses 1 through 4. Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. says, as for the one who's weak in faith. Oh, this poor brother or sister in Christ feels like everything displeases God. Every choice they make, God's unhappy about. As for that, brother or sister, just weak in faith, their conscience is just a burden. Welcome him. Not to fight about, not to debate or quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he can eat anything while the other person is, the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Look down to verse 13, Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So the main point, let me repeat it, discipleship leads to more mature conscience. Not less liberty. But here comes a brother or sister who says, I feel like meat is bad. Or I feel like Saturday is more important than Sunday. Or vice versa. Oh, okay. Well, what's the answer? Be- because the person who feels like, haven't you read the Old Testament? Why aren't we here on Saturday? Well, you know, I, I don't want to argue with you, but I, I mean, I can give you the reason. What are we supposed to do? Just tell the rest of the church, okay, we've got four people in church who really feel guilty about not getting together and keeping Saturday holy. And we don't want to make it worse for them by making them feel bad, so we're just going to shift our church service from Sunday to Saturday. Now, 3% of the congregation says, yes, please do that. 97% of the church says, what? I mean, can't we explain from the resurrected Christ and meeting with his disciples? Well, probably, but they just want to keep the Sabbath day holy. We could say, well, isn't Jesus the Sabbath? Yes, but they really feel guilty. Is that meant to be the condition of the church where essentially, you know, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Essentially, people say, follow me as my conscience is hyperactive. That's not a model for very healthy discipleship. But instead, when it says don't invite them into quarrel over opinions, it does not say stop discipling them doesn't say stop discipling them. So, we have 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know. Could you do this with me, just so, so we can do a little participation? Could you say, we know? Okay. So, he says, now, about the whole food question, about diet, about guilt, about hyperactive conscience... We know, okay, um, that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Therefore, as to the eating of food that's offered to idols, we know. Can you just say again, we know? 
Okay, we know that idol has no real existence. This is a fictitious character. And there is no God but one. However, not everyone knows this. Can you say not everyone knows? Okay. But some, through their past associations, whatever, whatever they're coming from, their experience, they eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience is weak and defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we eat than if we hadn't. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees that you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Hmm. Wow, so you, you, you have this theological confession. Idols are fictitious. They're just wood. They're just metal. I know this to be true. But then you have a brother or sister who says, ah, but that meat is somehow linked. Linked to what? A unicorn? That's not real. The solution is found in verse 7. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 7. However, we are in fellowship. We are in discipleship arena with brothers and sisters who don't know. They don't know. Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. You know what instruction we gave you through the Lord. This is the will of God, your sanctification. The solution to the hyperactive conscience is sanctification or discipleship of the conscience. By its exposure to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. That's the solution. I, if you're taking notes, if you're writing things down, please read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I don't have time for it right now. <clears throat> I want to say this, though. Discipleship, not less liberty, is the solution. The overactive or the seared conscience doesn't need more fences. That's a very typical way of governing the weak or the dull. But it is not God's plan. It doesn't need higher fences, but more discipleship. Make disciples. Here's why the conscience must be trained rather than activities prohibited. Our conscience, think about it, our conscience is really autonomous from the will. It is. It's not just autonomous like it's off in another area. It's over. So, have you ever found yourself about to make a decision to do something, and then, it's something you want to do, and then, I shouldn't. That's because your conscience isn't following the instructions of your will. And your conscience isn't just lagging behind, it's operating over. 
So again, J.I. Packer says this. Sometimes our conscience is contrary to the will. When the conscience speaks, it stands over the will, addressing us with authority, which we didn't give it, and we can't take away from it. It's like having an accountability partner handcuffed to your wrist. And the accountability partner is doing the bidding of God. Now let me ask you the question, do you think that that accountability partner should be spiritually mature or not? That's the reality, friends. We're we're dealing with day-to-day choices that are going to be an expression of our worship to God. And what condition do you want your conscience to be in when your weak will, your flesh maybe, when your flesh says, ooh, gratify me. Do you want to have a messenger ordained by God to say, don't do that? Or the hyperactive conscience. God has made everything a taboo. I have to give up everything to please him. And do you want to have a mature conscience that says, that's not true? Of course. This week, this is is a real concern, I think. This is a reality. And that's why I think just today, with a little bit of time, this is good um, addition to our study of Romans. I was talking with a young Christian man, had a real zeal to please God. He really did. And I was talking to him, and one of his hobbies that he really enjoys came up. And he told me that he thought he needed to give that hobby up. Oh, okay. Well, why? Why is that? Well, because I think if I can't give it up, it must be an idol. Okay. That's interesting. Because you enjoy it, you think you have to give it up? Yeah. Why? Why why do you think that? Just feel guilty if I don't give it up. What, What was that young man expressing? A hyperactive conscience. His conscience had just run amok and made him feel like things were evil that were not evil. And in that moment, like Peter, that's unclean, I I can't stop calling unclean what I've called clean. But that was what he was struggling with. Okay, let me give us an exercise. This will not be easy. I hope to communicate it well. I've picked on some really petty and easy targets, right? We're talking about liberty, we're talking about choosing. I've picked on some really kind of dumb things, like tattoos, like, should you get a tattoo? What does the Bible say? A nose ring? Should you play with playing cards? You know, okay, I've, I've beat all of those issues to death because they're just easy, right? No one's like, ooh, pastor, you brought up a real taboo there. Okay, I'm going to bring one up now. As I thought about just pastoring us through this issue of our conscience, I thought about our current situation and how we are literally standing in a moment that is unique in all of our history. 
It's a moment where we are being told that there is not basically a choice in whether we get vaccinated from COVID or not. But we are priests standing in a temple first. And I hope that we are dutiful in considering all of our acts as worship to God. And you don't have to read long to find out that there is some ethical debate among the makeup of a vaccination, more some than others. And I hope, I hope that you're dutiful. I hope that you, you think and read and pray about if vaccine, what vaccine, okay? That all operates in this area of conscience. Let me paint a, uh, this, this, this picture is going to be somewhat historic fiction, okay, if you know what historic fiction is. In 1972, embryonic stem cells are taken from a baby, unborn. Those embryonic stem cells known as HEK293 are duplicated produced, used, tested. Years later, embryonic stem cells taken from the retina of an unborn baby, PERC6, are, are being used in the construction of vaccines that we're told we have to take. And a huge question is this. How were those stem cells harvested? Because there is significant debate because the historical record is largely lost to history. Was that, was that baby aborted? Was, was that healthy pregnancy terminated? Was, was the baby murdered so that we could feel safer by vaccine? Priest before God. Or was this a loss of a pregnancy? The historical record to, I believe it's either Switzerland or Norway, is lost in some of those cases. Was it a, was it a lost pregnancy? I, I don't know what to do or what to tell you to do, frankly. Here's what I do know that I make that decision in a temple as a priest before God, offering my very body on the altar of his worship. And if in the end you or I choose that we must, as worshipers, abstain from anything that we have found to be truly associated with evil, murder, I want to add sensitivity to it by saying, did you hear what I said? A baby was murdered and stem cells were retracted from the baby's eyeball. And, and we say, okay, God, as unto you. And 
And what if, by not getting a vaccination, I increase my probability of dying? Well, that applies to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, that's a very tense scenario. But I want to step back to this point. This is where I stood when I said, I want to give you a sort of historic fiction example. I have shared potentials, what ifs. What if the, this particular vaccine is associated with embryonic stem cells? And this one isn't. And the ones that are coming are better, which is my understanding. What I want to say to you pastorally, not medically, not scientifically, pastorally, is this. Whatever you choose to do, don't somehow create a false dichotomy. Like the song you sing is worship, but the shot you get isn't. It's all worship. So, your conscience needs to be mature because it won't be easy. And it's not going to get easier. This isn't going to be the last time that you're going to be confronted with a serious dilemma. So let's keep discipling. Because you can remove all the Potential dangers, right? We can protect your kids from every potential sin. Like, oh, don't do that, because that might lead to that, 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 and then you'd be sinning, so I'm going to tell you not to do this. And we raise children who have lived in fences and don't have very strong conscience. They just have a lot of rules. It won't be easier, but God has provided. Romans chapter 2 says, when even Gentiles do what is good, it's evidence God has provided. He wrote code on their heart. In our redemption, the code is clearer. Romans 2.14 For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, there are a lot of themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show the work of the law written on their heart. God has provided. Their conscience is bearing them witness. The fact that when they're about to do evil, they're conflicted, that's proof of conscience. Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life. A healthy Christian conscience goes with us everywhere. It does. It goes with us to work. It goes with us to the internet. It goes with us to the restaurant. The healthy Christian conscience. We don't need more rules. We need stronger discipleship. Right? 1 Corinthians 11.29 Anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the Lord's body eats and drinks judgment to himself. That is why many of you are weak and even sick and some have died. If we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we wouldn't be condemned along with the world. There is a, a dull conscience in my unredeemed identity. It's just not very strong. And then Christ gives new life. Old, dull conscience passed away. But because of Jesus Christ, because of the new creation, he's the creator, 
because of the new creation, what, what Puritans used to call the eighth day of creation, the resurrection. Because of new creation, my conscience is a good gift from God as it is disciple. So we have work to do, right, within all of us. Conscience is very important, and the conscience needs to be discipled. And so let's keep on making disciples. Let's pray together. Lord Father, in front of us are many complex expressions of worship. Lord, there are so many. Parents are trying to decide how to raise children. Faithful laborers are trying to decide issues of work and and ethics in the workplace. All of us are living with the question about responsibility and we're hearing noise on every side about what is ethically right. And so because we don't know the answer to all of those things and because there is an ever-increasing abundance of misinformation, Father, we turn again to you and say that we are always dependent on you. And so, Lord, as you have given us what we refer to today as a conscience, we are thankful that it is a providence from you, and we're thankful, those of us who are united in Christ, that our conscience is no longer deceptive or dull, but it is made new. And so, Lord, as we think of each other and pray for each other and endeavor to glorify you in the ministry of discipleship, we are thankful for your long-suffering mercy and grace because we have so far to go as disciples. Thank you for giving us opportunities to serve each other in disciple-making and guard us from ever seeing someone whose conscience acts differently than ours as a problem to be avoided, but as a wonderful providence to do meaningful labor in the gospel. So we pray to you, we commit this to you. Lead us, guard us, the testimony of Jesus Christ in this place as we all seek to be priests and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.